welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Kemper Donovan, and I have an interview for you in this episode. There are many books about various aspects of Agatha Christie that get published every year, But this book that I'm about to discuss with its author is one of the best I've read in quite some time. Let's just get right to the interview where all will be explained. My guest today, Karen Pierce, is a Christie superfan and the writer of a new book called Recipes for Murder, 66 Dishes That Celebrate the Mysteries of Agatha Christie, which came out on the 22nd of August of this year. So it is hot off the presses. Many on this podcast will be thrilled to hear that Dr. John Curran has written the foreword to this book. I have, of course, read it myself, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And from the outset, I want to be clear about something. This is a book that features a recipe for each and every one of Christie's 66 full-length mystery novels. But Karen's book is much more than a compilation of recipes. There is a lot of interstitial writing in this book, and it's obvious that a great deal of time and effort and research went into the connections that she makes between each recipe and its corresponding Christie title. There were lots of really fun surprises in here for me as a Christie file. This is so this is very much a food lover's book, but it's also very much a Christie lover's book. And I think there are a lot of you out there who are really going to treasure this one. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Kemper. So let's just get started talking about Agatha Christie before we even get into the book. How did you first come across Agatha Christie? Well, every year, my sister and brother and I were toted off to the grandparents' house during March break. And the way, you know, we hung out in the house, I would spend a lot of time in my grandmother's room perusing her her book collection. Mm. And that's where I discovered the third girl. So I'm thinking that's March break. 68 because it would have been a paperback and i consumed that and of course it was the 60s and that book in particular is really well set in the 60s so i was like just mesmerized and uh subsequently read them all wow so third girl was your first christy yeah and yet you continue to read them all i'm kidding i know Uh, (laughs) that's great so how did you come up with the idea to write a recipe book having to do with all 66 of the mystery novels well i've always wanted to write a book i mean you know i'm quite i'm quite righty but i couldn't write a mystery the puzzle it was really hard i i have half written many of those so congratulations to you on finishing on (laughs) so there's that I've always wondered why there wasn't a Christie cookbook. You know, I, I kind of collect cookbooks. And so mm-hmm. there's cookbooks for everything these days. I mean, the Fast and the Furious have five cookbooks. <laughs> is that is that true? Wow. That is true. <laughs> so, you know, I just couldn't figure out why there wasn't one. And I am a bit of a foodie, foodie type person. So then I I just started to think, well, maybe I should write it. What would it look like? Like, I'm not a chef, but what is it? You know, do I, I do I need to be a nutritionist to write this book? And I kind of started, I thought at first, I'll just talk about how Christy uses food. And then as I started to reread them all, I realized that I had to explain Christy's food. 
So it sort of just became a chronological report of the food and customs around food as she recorded it in her in her novels over six, seven decades. Yeah, that's, I think, what's so great about your book, because I've talked about this so often on the podcast, but when you write 66 novels, there's just going to be a lot of material. And and I feel like if you're looking for something, you can find it in a Christie novel. And of course, she wrote about food a lot because food is a part of our everyday lives. And she really was so fascinated by domesticity and what people did and, and what they got up to in the course of crafting these puzzle mysteries. So if that's going to be your focus, if you are going to review the oeuvre with an eye toward food, there's actually going to be a lot to talk about and, and discuss. And that's exactly what you do in this book, right? Yeah, no. So that's, that's exactly it. She gets her cozy reputation simply because she dealt with families and, and, and how people live together. As we mm-hmm. all agree, she's not particularly cozy, right. but I think that that's where that label comes from. And so, therefore, her books are all about the family and and how the families all relate and tradition, history. Absolutely. Well, and I think that it's funny, too, because recipes at this point in a sort of mystery or mystery adjacent world make a lot of people think of the traditional cozy, what's what's come to function as the traditional cozy, many of which actually feature recipes. And I almost yeah. feel like you're kind of resting the recipe mystery world back up into one of scholarship. Not that there's anything wrong with those cozies. I love those cozies. I adore them. I'm sure many listeners adore them as well. But this is something a little bit different where you're saying, no, let's like really take a scholarly look at food and then also include these recipes, some of which are pulled almost directly from the books and then others of which are more your spin on Christie's treatment of this specific type of food inspired me to think of this recipe. So some are more directly inspired than others. Is that fair to say? Oh, totally. Because and, and that's because in some of her books, she doesn't mention specifically a food or a drink. Right. Like people will go in and out for meals and they're going to meet up for this and have tea, but you know, to tell me that they actually had that for lunch, this meal for lunch was pretty rare. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it really does differ from title to title. And that's why I know all of you listeners out there are going to be thrilled to hear that we actually have a top 10 list here that Karen and I are going to go through. Uh, because I was thinking, well, how are we really going to convey what you're doing here in this book? We can't go through every recipe or anything like that. So Karen, A-plus interviewee that she is, did some prep here for this interview and compiled a list of her top 10 Christie novels where food is concerned. And we are going to go through it right now. And I think that is going to give a sense of your differing approach, depending on the title and how Christie handled food in that title. So would you like to start us off? Karen, on your 10th pick? Well, first, I'd like to explain how I got my picks. Oh, please. Yes. Methodology, of course, of course. Methodology, because (laughs) I did my first run through looking at my top favorite recipes and the story behind them. And then I thought, no, that's what the book's for. Mm -hmm. So this top 10 is different. What I did was I created five categories of how food or drinks were used in the novel. And if the novel did one of those categories, it got a point. 
So you could get a point for the food or drink being the actual murder weapon or the delivery system for the murder weapon, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. You could get a point for food or drink being used to fully define a character, like a really good character description that you understand because of the food. Mm hmm being talked about same thing for setting scene or or cultural time mm -hmm. and then there would be a point if food or drink is central to the plot if the meal or the food is part of the plot then there's a point for that and then there's a point for just being a foodie book and actually listing dishes or the food being in many subplots and you know just Overall, paying a lot of attention to food, you could get a point for that. Gotcha. And then there's a bonus point if there's an actual recipe in the novel. Wow. Okay. Wow. This is fantastic. I had uh, listeners, I had no idea that it was this detailed of an analysis. I mean, this feels like a ranking system uh, akin to the one that Catherine Brobeck and I came up well, with. Well, um, I wonder <laughs> who inspired me. Oh, uh, well, I didn't want to uh, assume that we were the inspiration, but I'm happy to hear that we were. That's great. Absolutely. That's really, really fantastic. All right. Well, take us through it then, Karen. This, okay, is, your, this so is your system and your ranking. Go for it. I'm going to start with my two honorable mentions. Okay. These are here because I just couldn't not talk about them. One is the description of Anne Bedingfeld in The Man in the Brown Suit. There's this whole passage where she's running away from her captors in South Africa there, and she runs into the local drugstore and orders two coffee, ice cream, sodas to steady her nerves. It's just, it's just such a wonderful picture of this young woman, you know, having two ice cream sodas. And then she has a third, she has a maple one after that. And she makes it, you know, she goes on to say, well, I'm sure if this was a man, he'd be having a peg of whiskey. I just think it's lovely. So it's one of my honorable mentions. That's really great. So she, she's sort of filling out the character of Anne Benningfeld with drink. <laughs> basically. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like almost a half a point for character and a half a point for the culture, you know? The other honorable mention is uh, Tommy and Tuppence in uh, The Secret Adversary. I mean, they start off, it's right after World War One. They have no money. They're basically splitting a pot of tea and toast. Then she comes across with a bunch of five pound notes. She gets paid for one of their little things they're going to get up to. And they go, they go and Tuppence is surrounded by her dreams of many, many, many hors d'oeuvres, lobster a la Macron, chicken Newberg and Pesh Melba. <laughs> it's just, it was just such a wonderful little list of, you know, very expensive, popular meals in that time period. Like, I don't think you'd see any of them on a on a menu today. I don't think I've eaten any of those dishes and they do they do sound vintage for sure. And now that I think about it, I feel like food does feature in a lot of Tommy and Tuppence's because they're constantly eating out and the food is often mentioned. And then they have Albert, their yes. sort of <laughs> man of all work, um, who cooks for them. Then we hear about him burning chicken and or sometimes making delicious meals for them. Tuppence cooks a lot in Posture of Fate. All of this is by way of of a seamless transition into your 10th pick, which just so happens to be the Tommy and Tuppence novel. <laughs> By the picking of my thumbs, indeed. This one got three points. 
One point is for just what you talked about. This novel shows TNT as they get older, they're less fussy about their food. I don't know. Tuppence has some, you know, sandwiches made of questionable sandwich paste. And you're right. <laughs> Tommy forgets he's cooking a chicken all together and burns it. Like there's quite a lot, you know, these aren't the two that were running off to the Savoy to have lobster a la Americano. Yeah, they've grown up, I suppose, and I, and their standards have dropped. And I, I probably was misremembering that it was Albert who burnt the chicken, but you're right, it was Tommy. So with apologies yeah. to Albert, poor Albert, very, <laughs> very put upon. Exactly. <laughs> it really makes so much sense that the Tommy and Tuppence novels would be ones where Christie mentions food a lot, since these are some of Christie's more domestic mysteries or thriller-like mysteries, since she perhaps puts a little bit more of her own life and experience into the Tommy and Tuppences, certainly then she does the Poirots. The Miss Marbles get a little bit more of her, especially as she got on in years. And we know that Christy herself really did love her food. She loved her cream. It's pretty clear she was a bit of a sugar fanatic. I have to imagine she liked imbibing ice cream sodas, just like Anne Bedingfeld. So that all makes perfect sense. And this is very representative of what uh, you are getting at in your book, Karen, which is why it's so delightful. Before we move on, I should just mention that we are going to get a little spoilery here as to the titles mentioned in Karen's top 10, starting with By the Pricking of My Thumbs. It's very hard to talk about the way that food is used in these novels and not spoil things. So... If you are worried about spoilers, just take note as Karen mentions each title and then fast forward a couple of minutes per title or do whatever it is you do. If you are worried about coming across spoilers in an episode, pause it and read the title in question. I just want you all to be aware that this is an episode that will have a few spoilery things in it. All right, let's return to By the Pricking of My Thumbs. Back to you, Karen. So this novel also got a point because in the end, the murder puts the poison right in more milk and actually offers her cocoa or tea instead. That is very true. By the pricking of my thumbs, I love that as a 10th pick because I think that's not a book that people would often choose to highlight, but it makes a lot of sense when we're talking about food. And it gets the bonus point for having an actual recipe. It does? Yes. Tommy and Albert are going through that desk from Aunt Ada, and he pulls out three envelopes. One has a bunch of five-pound notes. One has a confession to a scandal. And the third has Mrs. McDonald's salmon cream. And you take two pounds of the center cut of salmon, a pint of Jersey cream, a wine glass of brandy, and a fresh cucumber. You know, I think there's also a short story in one of the Partners in Crime short stories. It's the one where they're looking for buried treasure Mm -hmm. in a house. And and I think they also unearth a recipe. There's a little bit of a running theme in Agatha Christie when people are looking for treasure in and around a house that they do find old recipes like clipped from magazines and and newspapers and whatnot. So I feel like that does crop up every now and then an old, right? There's a, I think it's a recipe for ham or something like that. But um, yeah, well, that, that makes sense that that would be in by the pricking of my thumbs. Yeah. So that's how they got their bonus point and their number 10. So I have quite a few of number threes and get who got three. The next, the next one up is the Caribbean mystery. Mm-hmm. Again, a point because, you know, a steak was being served for dinner that night, one night, and the steak knife was the murder weapon or one of the murder, murder weapons in that mystery. So point there. 
But the point I love the most is it's a discussion between Miss Marple and Tim Kendall. And Tim is trying to get her to have a nice bread pudding or, you know, can he make her something really toad in the hole like from English food? And she's like, no, no, no. <laughs> I come abroad for adventure. And she's munching away on her passion fruit sundae and like is having no part of this bread pudding discussion at all. It's just so wonderful that Miss Marple is like, just no, 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 I'm not your your usual senior. Well, and I so, feel yeah. like they're on holiday too, right? So there's a lot yeah. of when when one is on holiday, there's a lot of discussion of what you're going to eat, and you might eat something exactly. a little special. You sort of obsess over your food, I think, in a slightly different way on vacation as opposed yeah. to just in your regular life. Exactly. And so it's no surprise that she wants to try new things because that's who she is, right? She's very curious. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. So it also gets an extra point for food setting the scene, you know, because Major Paul Grave is having a planter's punch and we've got this passion fruit sundae. And mm -hmm. we're clearly, we're not in England. We've clearly left the big island for a much uh, smaller and hotter one. And Planter's Punch, I mean, Planter's Punch, just, I just immediately, I, I think, oh, okay, I'm in a tropical place. Like yeah. I am, when I, when I read the words Planter's Punch, I want to be drinking it immediately. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, where's the rock? Let's yeah. just start now. So that was number nine. So number eight is A Murder is Announced. Another Miss Marple. I love it. Another Miss Marple. So in this one, we start off with a, with a very big point for food setting the scene and the culture. Because this is right post-war, 1950, when it was published. Every, there's shortages in, in England. People are living on rations. There's all these wonderful neighborhood black markets where they're trading eggs, ducks, honey, quinces. I'm not <laughs> sure what a quince is. But they also, you know, they just seem to be trading everything, going in and out of everybody's back doors, which makes for a lot of fun in the, you know, for the police as people are just going in and out of the back doors trading things. But food totally sets the scene for for what's happening in this in this particular novel. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a huge part of establishing that post-war setting, which is so important, not only for the exquisite scene setting that Christie does, but I think also the mystery itself, right? Because the mystery actually exactly. hinges on that post-war setting. Yeah. yeah, it does it. It does it so well, and that's why it does it. And, and then food, I say, is central to the plot, Partly because of that, but the birthday party for Dora Bunner yep. is, you know, definitely central to the plot. Which brings us to the cake that was served. Uh -huh, yep. Mitzi's Delicious Death. Delicious So death. this is such a wonderful cake. It's described only by its ingredients in the book, which is much butter, a slab of chocolate, raisins, a pound of sugar. But I have to mention that in 2010, Jane Asher actually made this cake as a joint project with the uh, Agatha Christie Limited. Mm -hmm. So they did a big celebration and she, I think, has trademarked this particular recipe. Did she change but, the recipe at all or did it were those well, I the think only... she just added to it because yeah. it still does have the raisins and it still does have like a ton of chocolate and a lot of butter and it's very rich and it feels like an old cake, if you know what I'm saying. So Yeah. Yeah. I, I've I never... think she did uh, justice to it. I don't think I've ever had a chocolate cake with raisins in it. <laughs> Me either. 
Now that I think of it, I don't know if I, I I ever sat back to ponder that when I was reading A Murder is Announced. So it's almost like a cross between a fruitcake and a chocolate cake in that way, right? Um, kind of. It's a bit odd, you know. It's a little so, weird. I, maybe yeah. it would be at its best. Maybe it's like Cadbury fruit and nut or on this side of the pond, a chunky, which is a yeah. Cadbury fruit and nut-like candy. But at worst, it might be something a little weirder. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I, I changed it and have a different chocolate cake in the in the book. So, OK, well, yeah, yeah I think any delicious chocolate cake is a, a, you know, an appropriate celebration for this novel. And it's funny, I just covered all the dedications of Agatha Christie and she dedicates this book uh, to the couple at whose house she first tasted delicious death the cake that was called delicious oh. death so so this really this How was wonderful. a yeah it was a real cake that she that that she knew and loved and we all know that agatha christie had a massive sweet tooth yeah. so massive. i mean i think that most people probably if you ask them to name a novel of agatha christie's where food is central would probably say a murder is announced because of delicious death i mean it's it's very yeah. easy to recall the delicious death cake from murder yeah announced. No, yeah it's yeah. big it's like you know it's it's like well i've just been listening to your your murders episode mm-hmm. and uh yeah you can't get past some of those murders they 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 make the the entire uh novel memorable and in food certainly delicious death is one of those it really is yeah it's the, it's all in you know it's the alliteration it's just such a great name for a chocolate cake in a murder mystery so appropriate um and yeah. even though it's not what actually kills our second victim in that novel right mm. but it it seems to be what does exactly exactly so it just has this sinister aspect to it even though justice for poor delicious death cake there was nothing wrong with it and everyone who ate the cake was, <laughs> exactly. was it didn't fine. kill anyone <laughs> yeah yeah um another and, tidbit is yeah. it's the only one where you and i both have it's in both of our top tens Oh, interesting. Yeah, murder is announced. I know this is the great thing about your top 10, Karen, because it's such an odd, <laughs> I mean, it, this is all a matter of opinion, but it's such an yeah. odd top 10. But I love that it's, I mean, this is a really principled way of going about it. And and even, I think, odd that a murder is announced is only eighth out of 10. Because like I said, I think most people would probably put that first or at least in the top three. So let's keep on going because I'm, I'm really loving this because you have such good reasons and data to back up your ranking here. Yeah, no, it was fun to do. All right, so next up is Dead Man's Folly. So basically, food sets the scene. Big point for this one. A full Englishman's breakfast post-World War II is on offer on the sideboard. And it's I like how it, it doesn't so much describe the food as shows you who's eating what. So Sir George, he has the full-size breakfast of the eggs, the bacon, the kidneys, you know, everything else is coming. Miss Brewis, the uh, no-nonsense housekeeper, and Mrs. Oliver, are Mrs. Oliver, have the same, but much more moderately sized. But then Michael Wayman, the young architect who's staying with them, he just has a plate of cold ham. (laughs) It's nothing odd. Maybe a little European. And then Lady Stubbs, of course, thin toast and black coffee. Right. So I love how that whole description gives you both... You know, here's what's happening in the culture and here's what's happening with these people. It's fun. 
I feel like Agatha Christie is big on traditional English men, especially loving this big hearty breakfast with the yeah. meat and the eggs and the, you know, just in the toast. And it's just, it's this huge meal. And she often contrasts that with the quote unquote American uh, tradition of barely eating anything for breakfast. Yeah. I think that yeah. gets mentioned in Endless Night. I feel like I remember Mike Rogers talking about how as he came into his own and came into money, he grew an appetite like an Englishman for these big breakfasts. And um, there's just a, there's a lot of description of breakfasts and sideboards and and what people are are choosing. Sort of to like eat. tanned young men. But yeah, I think breakfast in in Christie is often a meal that gets a bit more description, perhaps even than than dinner on a regular basis oh yeah but, i think right so. yeah i do yeah definitely because also in chimneys is, is another big breakfast one yes yes um but i also think that like i say poor michael wayman you know who's who's a character she almost disparages in the novel and he only has cold hands so he's not like a real man right right <laughs> it's just really a very very funny way she does that all right, so food is central to the plot here because who the heck brought the tea to the bedhouse to um, Marlene, the, the girl guide playing the body? It's right. a big plot point, and we're not going to answer it because we're not going to spoil it. <laughs> and then this one gets one of my unusual points for being just plain foodie. It starts off with Poirot being offered, uh, you know, some plain bread with his tea. And, you know, he's lusting after a cream cake. It's like quite the description of him really wanting this cream cake. And then the Fed itself, it has vegetable stalls for awards and it has baking stalls for awards and has a full service tea tent where everybody's mm -hmm. coming and going and having their tea. And of course, Ariadne's apples also show up so oh yeah this is a point for another sort of uh, a foodie point yeah that makes a lot of sense and i think we can see christie's long abiding love for cream in the in uh you know <laughs> exactly. Poirot's longing is clearly christie's longing oh yeah yeah <laughs> It's wonderful because, you know, would you like, like a nice sandwich or perhaps <laughs> plain bread and butter? It's like, just, no! <laughs> you can almost hear him screaming in his head. Well, and I, and I feel like Poirot, there's a lot of foodiness to Poirot and she does, you know, she gives him a lot of appetites and specific tastes um, as evidenced by the fact that I think we have a whole lot of Poirots here in your top 10 to go. We started yeah. with, with the Tommy and Tuppence and two Miss Marples, and now we're onto our first Poirot, but we've got many Poirots to go, don't we? Yes. And then back to, back to Marple. Interesting. So next yeah. is South Cyprus. This is another one, a three pointer. So the sandwiches are kind of the weapon of delivery it ends up with the poison being in the tea but yep. definitely this particular meal so there's a point here for this meal being both uh food as a weapon and a plot point because this particular luncheon where they have these uh sandwiches with the nurse and mary gerard and Eleanor is is central. I mean, it is the point. That's where she dies and everything goes on from there. I mean, I would say that the book is obsessed with those sandwiches. I think yeah. one of the one of the lasting images of that book is that plate of fish sandwiches, the sandwiches with the fish paste. And I can never yeah. forget that. And I think, you know, that even was 
somewhat inspired by the Hey on Why poisoner, uh, which was a real life poisoner who did use a plate of scones at a tea as his means of poison. And it, it it's really interesting. I've never thought about it that way, Karen, but it's the sandwiches are really a red herring, right? They're... They totally are. And you know, <laughs> red... I, I have them as Sorry, food being part of the scene in the culture because that conversation between Eleanor and Mr. Abbott talking about, you know, bad fish paste in tins and haven't there been poisonings and stuff. It, it, yep. it turns the sandwiches into a complete red herring. Because the the issue is always, well, how would he, Eleanor, if she was the murderer, have been able to direct, you know, which sandwich she took? But then it's like, well, actually, Mary Gerard, the victim, only liked a certain kind of sandwich, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, there's just so, so much preoccupation and obfuscation with those sandwiches. It, it, the only thing that would have made it more perfect as if it had been herring paste. Yeah. The fish question been herring, but oh well. <laughs> Indeed. This episode is sponsored by Better Help. As many of you know, I have a big trip coming up soon to England, where I'll be attending both the Agatha Christie Conference and International Agatha Christie Festival. And I'm not going to lie, there have been some nights where I have been desperately trying to go to sleep, and my brain is just racing about everything I have to get done. I'm sure a lot of you can relate. And as it turns out, one great way to make those racing thoughts go away is to talk them through. Therapy is an excellent means of doing that, allowing you to move past your negative thought cycles and find some mental and emotional peace. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Therapy is not just for those who have experienced major trauma, though if you have, it is there for you, too. It is there for all of us, and if you've been thinking about giving it a try, I suggest you use BetterHelp, especially since I have a nice little promotion for all you listeners today. So get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Agatha today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Agatha. Okay, so then we come to Mrs. McGinty's dad. Oh, one of my favorites. So this is wonderful for so many reasons. So this is actually a description of uh, Poirot himself. He begins the, the novel, he's like licking his lips. He's been at, at uh, La Vie Grand Mère, and he's had their delicious escargot. And oh, he's just, and, and he goes on to lament that he can only eat three times a day. <laughs> <laughs> Food is definitely used to define uh, Monsieur Poirot's character there. Absolutely. And um, then we're going on to setting the scene. Now, this is where we get a, a little bit more into history again. So now it's 1952. And people like Colonel and Mrs. Summerhays, who are sort of low-end aristocracy, you know, they've never worked. They don't even know how to boil an egg for themselves. But here they are at home, running their home as a guest house. They've lost so much money during the war and the devaluation and everything. And this is going on all over the village. It's it's like quite a subplot. Really squarely puts this right at a particular time for England. Post-war, we're not recovered yet. You know, people are doing things they never thought they'd do. 
for money and and a lot of it has to do with they they all have these big houses and lots of land but no money right there's a wonderful wonderful little thing of maureen uh asking if they've got the seven pence up front or something you know that's that's how tight it is for these people so it really sets the scene of what's going on in england at that time it really does. I think, again, this is Christy being so good at evoking that post-war setting and changing with the times, which she still doesn't get enough credit for. But when you go to the yes. text, when you go back to the actual text and you read them closely, it's there in all those books in the late 40s and the, the 50s, especially before she goes into the 60s and then she's evoking the 60s. But um, yeah. it, food in particular, though, and Mrs. McGinty said, I mean, one of my favorite things about that book is how funny... It is that Poirot is forced to be a lodger with oh, Summer Hayes's because he is so beside himself because she's such an awful cook, right? And the food it's is wonderful. awful. And yeah. The book gets a point for being a foodie on this because by the end of the novel, he has made friends with Maureen. He has given her a cookery book and actually taught her how to make an omelet. And further along, this is attested to by Julia Upjohn in Cat Among the Pigeons, when Julia tells Poirot that her Aunt Maureen makes a smashing omelet. And uh, he says, then I have not lived in vain. She was so good at sort of evoking food and the issue, I think, of Maureen Summerhays and how bad of a cook she was and how Poirot helps her that she actually refers back to it in another yeah. book in Cat Among the Pigeons. And she doesn't do that that often because Christy, you know, the continuity could get wonky very quickly with Christy. So yeah. I think she she liked to, you know, keep a bit of a tight lid on that and just keep each book <laughs> to itself. But I love that we get that reference in Cat Among the Pigeons back oh, to Maureen Summerhays. Like totally one of my favorites. Yeah, me too. And it's and, and it's food-based because of that omelet. And I, and I completely remembered that when I was reading Cat Among the Pigeons. I was like, oh my God, yes, the omelet. Um, yeah. And it's, it's <laughs> so lovely too because Poirot you know this is where Agatha Christie characterized it's like she has her cake and she can eat it too because <laughs> to use a food analogy because we're amused by how annoyed Poirot is with the substandard conditions at this yep. quote-unquote lodge but then he also out of the kindness of, a, of his heart actually helps them so we get yes. the comedy but we also you know are reminded of what a good and kind-hearted person Poirot actually is and it's it's all just lovely it's 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 a big reason why i love mrs mcginty's dad as much as i do yeah no he uh he really shines and uh yeah. really really shines also apples more apples <laughs> lots of apples in that one absolutely <laughs> all right so now this is a, a fun story now we come to number four which has three and a half points now originally Ooh. This was my number one. Oh, wow. But I revised it when I was flushing it all out. I revised it. Okay. I've given him a point and a half for uh, food being the weapon because literally it's used three times. Well, let's let's say what the title is for everyone. Oh, I'm sorry. Three act tragedy. Okay. <laughs> Karen and I are both looking at our list right now, but <laughs> <laughs> so yes, in three act tragedy, Christy kills off the people all three times, and all three times with poison cocktails, poison whiskey, and poison chocolates. Yes, so, that's so true. I love it. Yeah, and but I couldn't give three points, so I did give a point and a half. Okay, okay. I also gave a point for the cocktail party and the dinner party at Dr. Strange's are both central to the plot. Mm -hmm. So a point there. 
And then uh, they got their, the third point is for the wonderful menu that they were going to have for dinner at Crow's Nest. Mm-hmm. And this list that uh, Miss Milray gives to Charles Cartwright. Melon cantaloupe, borscht soup, fresh mackerel, grouse, souffle surprise, canapé Diane, and cocktails. I love that. I know. I want to go for dinner. But anyway, so a point a point for being a bit of a foodie there. I feel like putting Diane after any food item just immediately makes it sound mid-century vintage. Like, you know, steak Diane, canapé Diane. You know, you could basically say octopus Diane, you know, soup Diane. And I'd be like, (laughs) yes, that sounds lovely. (laughs) You know? It does, doesn't it? Yeah. And let's never forget Three Act Tragedy is the rare Poirot that also features Mr. Satterthwaite. And he's such a foodie himself. I almost just feel like the half a point can come from his presence, even though I don't think he's particularly foodie-ish in the the book. But, you know, just having him there kind of puts us in that zone. Adds to the foodiness of it all. Yeah, yeah. All right. So now we're at my top three. Ooh, okay. Okay. So number three, and this is another one where both the title appears in the top 10 for you and the top 10 for me. And that's The Hollow. 1946 is The Hollow. I have it as three, you have it as nine. So I love this book. But anyway, one point. The murder tries to escape justice by poisoning the tea. There at the end, <laughs> yep. it's like, what? <laughs> when you least expect it, she pulls it out and, and tries to poison the tea. So point there. Now, the next two points are kind of a crossover. So I've given them one point for character and one for culture, but... It could be two for character or two for culture. They're just so perfect. And one is, as you talked about in The Murderers, is Gerda. That whole scene where she is just completely filled with internal angst over whether, because her husband is late for lunch. So should she put the joint, send the joint back to keep it warm? Mm. But will he get mad if it's not hot when he finally shows up? Mm-hmm. If it's not here when he finally shows up. But if she leaves it here for when he finally shows up, it'll be cold and won't he be angry about that? And this goes on and on and on. It's like, it's really well written, but you yeah. know exactly who this woman is and in yep. what culture she's living by that description. Absolutely. That's such a good point. Yep. And then the second great one is Lucy. So Lady Lucy Angatel, someone has been killed, who is invited for lunch, was killed at lunch. But the people have had to stay there all afternoon because of the police. So now they're having dinner. Well, Lucy tells us that serving caramel pudding for dinner that evening showed great delicacy of feeling on behalf of Mrs. Medway, the cook, for there would be something quite gross about eating one's favorite pudding right after the death of her friend. And Cook knew they were only moderately fond of a caramel pudding. <laughs> That's so great. Well, and also, if I remember correctly, when the character of Lady Lucy Ancatel is introduced, her forgetfulness is evoked by way of putting a uh, kettle on an iron and then just forgetting about it. And then don't the, the help sort of grimly realize like, oh, she's basically melted another one. And then they they like just take it away and, and replace it with a new kettle. And you get the feeling they have like 20 kettles, you know, exactly. in some kitchen Stash cabinet. Yeah. Well, and- does this so like every day <laughs> it, it teach, they get an extra point for the foodiness of it and i have that point that lucy burns out a kettle a week making early tea for guests yep 
And there's a gun hidden in a basket of eggs, and it's not even the murder weapon. And early in the book, Poirot talks about his cottage rest haven. The best thing is the vegetable garden and the devoted care his stomach receives from Francois, the gardener's wife. I love that. Lots of food in this novel, and that's why I got four points. It's just wonderful that way. There's also, yeah, there's an iconic cover of The Hollow, which my dear and departed former co-host, Catherine Brobeck, I know that she owned it herself because it, it might still actually be one of the images on our Twitter profile, but it's a gun in a basket of eggs. Yeah. An allusion to that very basket of eggs in the book. And I believe it's one of the Tom Adams covers. It certainly looks I like it, it anyway. Is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's um it's gorgeous and just so memorable. So I feel I I think of eggs actually when when I think of the hollow. So I think <laughs> I it's earned it's earned its number three spot. Yeah. So you're not gonna be surprised that the number two spot is at Bertram's Hotel. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, okay. so this is this is another four-pointer. I mean, food is everywhere here. So yeah. first, it sets the scene, and then the scene is so central to the plot. It's really the secondary plot. I don't know how else to, to describe it, but, you know, the soft-boiled eggs and tea to the English guests and the cereal and the cold orange juice going to the American guests, and then the high tea is served in the lobby by Henry, the absolute perfect butler. And then, you know, in the evening, you can have beefsteak pudding and saddles of mutton and... <laughs> the whole thing is just like, you know, an ode to Edwardian England. And uh, it goes right through the scene, the culture, the plot, and, and makes it very, very foodie all over, I think. That book is drenched in food. I totally yeah. agree. And it's a big reason why the book works, I think, as well as it does, because she really does use food to set the scene. And we know immediately what kind of a place it is based on, you know, the lavish menu and the care exactly. that I think, you know, is applied to getting the food exactly right and making it in an old fashioned way. And the seed cake that's mm -hmm. made from scratch. And I always make reference even to the Joan Hickson adaptation where Beth Sedgwick bites into the jelly donut and the jelly squirts out. And then she like laughs for three minutes straight or two minutes straight, like literally two minutes straight <laughs> in the film. And it's very bizarre, but it's just like, oh my God, because this food is just so fantastic. She can't get over it. And everyone is just, it's an orgy of food. It really is. It is. It is. But that's not just in the film. That's in the book. That she bites it. Yeah. The, the two yes. minutes love laughing she, she is definitely in the film. Bite yeah. <laughs> of a jam donut, threw her head back and laughed. One of the loudest and gayest sounds heard in the lobby of Bertram's hotel for years. <laughs> and apparently and, one of the longest sounds, too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But you really get a picture of who Beth Sedgwick is from that description. And her biting that donut and throwing her head back, laughing and loudly. Like, you can see her going off in a sports car to have more adventures, can't you? Absolutely. And, and I would yeah. even say, I mean, spoiler, but the, this this list is all is all very spoilery. Beth Sedgwick, as initially misremembered by me as I was doing the Ranking the Murderers uh, episode, by the way, I initially misremembered at Bergen's Hotel ending in Beth Sedgwick being the murderer because she really is the dominating presence of that book. She's not the murderer, but she is the mastermind behind the sort of yeah. criminal ring who are, are stealing things. 
yeah, knocking people over the head and whatnot. She sort of takes the fall, or at least tries to take the fall for the murder that does occur. But given that the first image is her biting into something and having this red spurt out, it feels yes. very brutal and dare I say even animalistic, right? That this is a person who it's it's the red is it's, it's as if there's blood and this is just someone who's not afraid to draw blood and she's just laughing in the face of danger. And yeah. I mean, my God, what a great use of a jelly donut. <laughs> I know. It's, just, it's like when food is used to really define a character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like couldn't have been done any better. So that's where they got their fourth point from. That's fantastic. Very, very well so, earned. Okay. Well, and this is this is really a surprise to me. I it is time for your top ranked food novel of Agatha Christie's. And I never would have predicted this one. And I cannot wait to hear uh, your reasons for why it gets the top spot. So go ahead, Karen. All right. Well, this is the 450 from Paddington. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, a Marple one. Well, right off the top, poison's in the cocktail jug and is added to the curry, which is served at dinner, you know, the critical dinner where a lot of action happens. So it's a delivery system there. And then at the end, Miss Marple, and I don't get this, she fakes choking on a bone from the fish paste sandwich she's eating. (laughs) so how do the bones still get in the fish paste i don't know but there's miss marple faking choking on one i guess if it's homemade like homemade fish paste and you're just you're mashing up a fish fillet like you know i mean i actually happened to have just yesterday or really two days ago i ate the leftovers yesterday you know i made a fillet of salmon and it's, it's like sometimes depending on the cut you you have no bones in your salmon and then other times you're like oh my god why are there like 50 bones in this it's salmon true. right now but those aren't really bones you could i guess you can choke on them i mean i have small children so that's why i worry about it because they could choke on them but yeah it's I, well it's a, it's all a ruse right so yeah. she wouldn't have yeah. really choked on them anyway but yeah i suppose it's possible <laughs> but yeah it's all a bit suspect. it did make me giggle It did make me giggle. So anyway, so food is used to define a character and set the scene in the culture. Again, this is one where it comes together. So Lucy Islesborough is a very modern young woman, and she's been very, very well educated, but she also is very organized, apparently. So she can cook like a dream, especially her roast beef, her Yorkshire puddings, her treacle tarts are all just adored by the whole entire family. She cooks everything from scratch. Um, But she only comes and stays for a month. She's hired by the wealthy who no longer has has servants. Like this is the late 50s, right? Mid to late Mm -hmm. 50s. So, you know, live-in servants are hard to come by, but the upper classes still need them for holidays, sick relatives, the kids being home from school, what have you. And so they tend to hire someone like Lucy to look after them for a month. So this is like, I, I there's two points here, both how she cooks, what she cooks, which is all very traditional, and her role as this, you know, hired temp help is, um, yeah, I think pretty interesting and sets that cultural scene because this is about a family who are wealthy, but not really. Yeah, I mean, Lucy Islesboro is one of the more memorable minor or secondary characters that Christy yeah. created. And I never thought about it that way. But, you know, one of her main functions is as a cook, 
And, and as someone yeah. who's, who's just very good at making meals efficiently that are tasty <laughs> and yeah, food really is used to define her. Constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Her, cur- you know, and she does everything from the curry that's served at dinner, as I say, to trickle tart. And she makes the young boys like over the moon, happy asking if it'll be bloody enough. And yeah, right, it's, right. it's really, it's a lot of fun. Food is a lot discussed when it comes to this woman. So if food is central to the plot. Well, this is true because this annual memorial dinner, which is, a, I think, about their late mother. They, they all have to come once a year to this dinner where the poison is in the cocktail and added to the curry. Mm-hmm. And many members get sick. So this is definitely central to the plot. So that's four points. And guess what? It gets a bonus point. <gasps> When Inspector Craddock says to Lucy, well, I suppose the soup was from a tin, she quite snarkily answers, no, sir, and basically lists off the ingredients. And I must say, this is one of the first recipes I tried. Because she lists it out. She goes, you know, a pound of mushrooms, and then there's lemon, and you make a roux out of this. And she tells you exactly how to do it. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it all down and I made it. And it's the most delicious lemon mushroom soup I've ever had. So you literally just follow the directions in yep. the book in 450 yep. from Paddington and a yep. delicious mushroom soup. It was sued. Wow. And you can almost just see her hands on her hip, you know, snarkily answering the, the uh, Inspector Craddock. No, I made it myself. Can how dare really, you? <laughs> I know it's so good. Lucy Islesbro does not use tins <laughs> exactly, and that particular conversation is lost in most of the the adaptations. But you know where it is in? It's in one of the Margaret Rutherford ones. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yes. She mentions this mushroom soup. It's just wonderful. Look at that. A little bit of a plug for the Margaret Rutherford, Miss Marple adaptations. <laughs> exactly. we, we're not able to do that very often, but I, no, I, love but I remember watching it and thinking, oh my God, she talks about the mushroom soup. <laughs> so excited. <laughs> That's really great. Well, wow. That is, I mean, that was a comprehensive list and you really backed up your choices there with, with solid data from the text. And I couldn't ask for anything more, Karen. And I, and I just think going through that list, should give our listeners a sense of how knowledgeable you are about the food in Agatha Christie and how much there really is to discuss both as to plotting and character and setting and everything that Christie does in her books through the lens of food. And that is what you're doing in this book, in addition to also giving us 66 recipes. So there's just, there's a (laughs) lot, there's a lot going on in this book. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. And going through that top 10 was a lot of fun. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing all that preparation. Oh, no problem. That was fun. That was <laughs> definitely fun. And I, I did have two friends over to make sure I, I got it all. And uh, <laughs> it was good, you know, talking through them because they, they kept pushing me to tie it back to the history, mm-hmm. which they, you know, as we've discussed, thinking the chronology, you know, the history is a lot of what makes this really interesting. Absolutely. Well, now I'm curious whether your own personal favorite Christie novels line up with this list at all. What are what are your personal favorite Christies? Well, okay. First off, I'm going to say I agree with 
you and all the other people that say Five Little Pigs is the best, Christy. Oh, and I agree. <laughs> music to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's the ones I reread all the time because they're my comfort books. Mm-hmm. And they're not always the best of Christy. But Death on the Nile. Mm-hmm. And I like you. I love the original, the book. I love the relationship between Jacqueline and, and Poirot as he tries to talk her out of it. It's just... I love that one. Mm-hmm. I love Sad Cypress, mm-hmm. Carol and Anne House, because I think uh, Nick is the most amazing character, what spa the woman has. Yep. And of course, the man in the brown suit. I mean, if I could have been Anne Bedingfeld, I would have. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. You're really si- singing my tune here. Uh, and is, then that's a great list. <laughs> the hollow. I just, I love wow. how many definitions of love are shown in the hollow. Love of her husband, love of the research, love of art, love of the land, love of family. It blows my mind away. I think it's like, it's a love story, really. Yeah. No, I mean, I really think that The Hollow is the best Mary Westmacott novel that Christie yeah. wrote. And and I say that by way of highlighting how good and how interesting the Mary Westmacotts yeah. can be. That is in no way a dismissal of the book because they can be. You feel that she's doing the same thing. She's she's sort of plumbing the depths of emotion and just those, those deep passions that yeah. people can feel for each other. And a little bit Sad Cypress too. I mean, there's a lot more. Sad yes. Cypress is... A, Absolutely. Is, right? Yeah. I mean, Sad so Cypress lo- still has... in that one too. Yeah, it has, you know, the puzzle in there, I think, is a little bit more front and center and and a little bit more of the focus. I mean, that's what's also so interesting about The Hollow, because as a detective story, as a mystery, there's not as much going on there as there usually is in a Christie, which is why it's a little more obviously Mary Westmacottish, but yes. um, but it still works. I mean, it's still just an exquisite novel. And Sad Cypress, I think, has, has a bit of that, but feels a little bit more uh, recognizably like a Christie mystery. But yeah, oh, that's a great list. I really love that. Well, you knew I wasn't going to let you go without making you choose, <laughs> however. And, you know, in your top 10, I, I couldn't help noticing that you have five Poirots and four Miss Marples and one Tommy and Tuppence. So I have no idea how this is going to go. If you had to choose, who would you choose, Poirot or Marple? You know, I think in the, in the past, I might have gone with Poirot, but I think Catherine... Push me towards dark marble. I really <laughs> like marble. I like when she's not dark and I like when she's dark. She's yes. she's such an interesting character. She has more character, I think, maybe. Yeah, I think I'm marble. I, I think love that, that might have changed over the years, too. Well, I love that answer. And I love that you're crediting Catherine with making us see the light as to Marple or the darkness, I, I guess I should say, <laughs> but making us see the dark, you know, because Catherine was the was the Poirot disciple. I mean, that's I the funny thing. Catherine was the one who loved Poirot over Marple. I was always the Marpleite. But I think Catherine's insight into what really is going on with the Miss Marple character really does speak to a lot of people and myself included. So I think that is a great reason for going with Miss Marple. And you know, I'm always going to approve. <laughs> of, of that choice. <laughs> she's converted us all. She's converted, or not us all, but she's converted many of us, I think, over to Miss Marple or or made us appreciate her, I think, in a way that we wouldn't have before she shared that dark marble theory with all of us. Yeah, and, well, and I think when I was younger, I was much more action-oriented. Mm. And as I get older, I like a little, maybe I appreciate more of her subtleties. Yeah. 
Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I mean, Karen, you are, as, as I opened up this interview, you are a Christie super fan. I feel like we are all in the same small circle here of <laughs> fanatics and scholars. And I'm so glad that you were able to produce this book because I think that a lot of people are going to enjoy it, not just for the recipes, but for the insights that... Uh, oh, I hope so. For yeah, sure. that you have about Christie. So thank you so much for the book and thank you for coming on here and giving us your time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I feel honored to be here. So this is great. Thank you again to Karen Pierce. I have provided a link to Karen's book on bookshop.org, which is a really great way to support indie bookstores, even when buying books online. I had such a great time speaking with her, and I think many of you will really, really enjoy her book. It also would make a great holiday gift for the Christie lover in your life, which might be you <laughs> at the end of this year. Just a thought. I am actually going to be doing another interview episode in two weeks' time. I was honored to write the foreword to a book entitled Agatha Whiskey, 50 Cocktails to Celebrate the Best-Selling Novelist of All Time. So I spoke about Agatha Christie and food in today's episode, and in two weeks' time, I will be speaking about Agatha Christie and cocktails or lack thereof. <laughs> the author of this book is Colleen Mullaney. So Colleen and I will be speaking together. I can't wait to bring you that conversation. If you would like more all about Agatha, you can of course head on over to the podcast's Patreon page. There is a link in the notes to this episode. I'll be dropping a new Patreon episode in just a few days all about The Lie, a radio play adaptation of Agatha Christie's stage play, The Lie. I mentioned this in my episode all about the stage plays of Agatha Christie, but Christie theater expert Julius Green adapted The Lie himself for radio and then directed this production, which is available for free on YouTube. So Patreon listeners will get to hear my thoughts on this little known until recently early Agatha Christie play. This is one that really gets into the nitty gritty of what happened to Agatha Christie during her most troubled, turbulent period when her first marriage to Archie Christie ended. There's lots to chew on, lots of mastication to happen in that episode. So head on over to Patreon if you are intrigued. You can always email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Twitter. Ugh, do I have to say X? I'm just going to keep on saying Twitter. The handle is at allaboutthedame. And the podcast is on Instagram at allaboutagatha. I have at long last figured out how to make my author page on Facebook work. This has taken me weeks, if not months, but you can find me over on Facebook at Kemper Donovan Books. And the reason I have set up that Facebook page is that I do have an original mystery novel coming out in a few months time in late January of 2024. That would be The Busy Body. And I have provided a link to my publisher in the notes to this episode, which links to any number of booksellers from which you can pre-order The Busy Body. I encourage you to do so. That would really help me out. What would also help me out is if you provided a rating and or a review for the podcast, wherever you are listening to it. Those are always appreciated. And I'll see you next time. Bye.